Now, here we're speaking of the foretelling of events as prophecy, that is, where something that hasn't happened, right, by, under the authority of God, God proclaims that it will. Well, if he says that it will happen, it will happen. Hello and welcome to Grace Merville Weekly, which is a sermon podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is titled The Birth of Jesus. Pastor Chris Riser will be teaching us from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which describe the role of Joseph and how God used Joseph, who was a descendant of King David, and his role in Jesus' birth. Do you have doubts about who Jesus is? How confident are you that Jesus is truly the Messiah? Are you staking your life on who Scripture says Jesus is with nothing held back? In these verses, Pastor Chris will teach us how Joseph responded to the news of who Jesus was. Pastor Chris will also show how Matthew demonstrates that all the Old Testament prophecies point to Jesus as the promised Messiah, Savior, and King. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1, and we'll be reading verses 18 through 25. If you'll stand with me, we'll read the scripture as we stand. And if you've been looking at the outline, you've one noticed that it's rather long. Uh, the Lord is gracious. Uh, and also, you might have noticed that it looks very familiar. Well, we covered this same passage when we were discussing our, during our Christmas time. So if you missed that, you have the precious privilege of hearing it this morning because it's God's Word. But if you already listened to it, then this is your practice. How well did you listen last time? I'm hoping that most of this will be familiar, that you'll already remember, wow, you taught us that already, but I'll stir you up by way of reminder. It seems good to, in the flow of our passage as we're studying exegetically through this book, to go over it again and perhaps to have a bit of a different emphasis as we work our way through it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Please be seated. I believe that a level of doubt is warranted if you want to become an authentic believer. So spoke a young and sincere college student with whom I was having an earnest discussion about the nature of faith and the Christian walk several years ago. Now his statement that doubt is a necessary and in fact important part of the Christian life is a reflection of a mode of thinking that's popular today in evangelical circles. The idea that doubt about spiritual things is healthy. The scriptures, however, say exactly the opposite. They were, in fact, written to dispel doubt and to engender complete confidence in the nature of God and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Doubting faith 
is an oxymoron. Now, we do doubt. We do wrestle and struggle. But the goal of the Christian life is that we would ever increasingly set aside our doubts and focus upon the reality, the truth of the one who came to die for us, the truth and reality of who God is. And Scripture lays that out for us. In fact, what we've been discussing in the book of Matthew is that is one of the primary reasons that Matthew was written. That the the doubt that the first century Christians had about whether or not this is truly the Messiah would be dispelled. Not that they would somehow doubt more or somehow have a healthy doubt about who Jesus actually is. The world doubts. Believers do not doubt. Or at least their doubt is ever increasingly put away. Why? Because of the truth of Scripture. We have absolute truth given to us. And therefore, we can have increasing confidence that what God has told us is true. So I'd like to ask you this morning, How confident are you that Jesus is truly the Messiah? Are you staking your entire life upon this truth with nothing held back? You see, God's word demonstrates to us that this trust is completely warranted and in fact demanded by the nature of who Jesus really is. We had a funeral service this weekend, a funeral service for a man who did not doubt the reality of Jesus Christ and did not doubt where he was going. And this was clearly communicated to all around him. What a blessing. But as we grow in faith, it is our goal that we would end our lives that way, not sliding towards death, wondering if God really exists, but pressing on towards our impending and inevitable death, fully convinced that we will be welcomed by and in the presence of the God of the universe. That is true faith. That is faith that encourages and strengthens. So what we'll see this morning is that Jesus is the true king of Israel whose birth perfectly fulfills every related Old Testament prophecy and thus provides total confidence that he is the promised Messiah. Again, Jesus is the true king of Israel whose birth perfectly fulfills every related Old Testament prophecy and thus fulfills or thus provides total confidence that he is the promised Messiah. Now, we just read verses 18 through 25, but we have spent uh, much time in introducing the book as well as discussing the genealogy that precedes it. Matthew 1, 1 through 17 provides us the lineage of Jesus as traced through Joseph's line back to David and finally to Abraham. Joseph was of Davidic descent through Solomon and the kings of Judah. And although Jesus was not of the physical lineage of Joseph, because there was a virgin birth, and we really discovered that before we read the rest of the story in verse 16, where it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah, the by whom is feminine. The, The text is very clear to say that Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus, but Mary was the physical mother. And so we've learned that descent, and we've essentially learned then that there's a legal line that is going down through here since Joseph was not of the physical, or excuse me, Jesus was not of the physical lineage of Joseph. But really now, the question that is being answered as we begin in verse 18 is, how does Joseph relate to all this? How does Jesus then enter into the line of of Abraham, the line of David, if Joseph is not the physical father? That's really largely why this why this section is written, to explain that to us, and really to do so from Joseph's point of view. Now, beginning in 118, after the lineage, really the the lineage of the king, we now have the birth of the king, but that's part of a larger narrative or section of the narrative that goes all the way through chapter 2, verse 23. And we kind of, we know this is all bound together because there are five places in in relationship to the birth of Christ where Matthew uses what's sometimes called the the fulfillment formula. That is, this was written or this came about to fulfill what was written. 
And so he uses that five times in this particular section of narrative to demonstrate the reality of what the Old Testament had proclaimed was true. Always Matthew referring back to say, what you heard in the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures are being borne out everywhere in in the complete fulfillment of everything that relates to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament that is designed to relate to Christ is in fact being lived out. Essentially, this is the true Messiah. The one whom you believe in is the right one. You don't have to wait and you don't have to wonder. It is all tied together, Old and New Testament. And Matthew does that at the very beginning. He says, it is fulfilled. Now also, another main purpose of this section is to demonstrate the specific scriptures that are fulfilled in Messiah's birth and early life. So he doesn't just give us general scriptures. Instead, he well, gives a couple of general ones, but largely he is, he's taking us back to specific places in scripture so that we can see how prophecy is fulfilled. And we'll spend a little bit of time on that this morning and then in an ongoing way because it's somewhat of a difficult issue. How exactly is Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the New So we will talk a little bit about that, but it's one of the main reasons for this section. This section also demonstrates, really, the prophetic direction of Jesus' geographical process or or progress. He started in Nazareth, or really uh, Mary and Joseph begin in Nazareth. They move to Bethlehem, and then they go back to Nazareth at the end of this narrative by way of Egypt. And so we're tracing that prophetic work that God is doing sovereignly through history to direct them. And it's a good reminder to us. Again, what we believe is an historical belief. This is an historical narrative. These things really happen. And God sovereignly works in history to bring about exactly what he predicts, even when it looks impossible. You remember that Jesus is dogged all throughout his life by how can a prophet arise from Galilee? Who comes out of Nazareth? That's not predicted. And yet it's a misunderstanding, really an ignorance of where Jesus really came from. And so Matthew's pointing back to that. No, I know, he essentially saying, I know the tradition, the myth is out there that Jesus came from Galilee, but that's not where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem. Now to us, of course he was born in Bethlehem. We've grown up with that all of our lives, but the first century Jews were questioning because it was out there that he wasn't. And so he couldn't be the Messiah if he wasn't born in Bethlehem. Well, Matthew is saying, no, he was. But then he ends up back in Nazareth because this is what God desired. This is what God, in fact, predicted. And then there's this apologetic purpose that we've been talking about, to set forth the way in which readers can recognize in the unlikely person of Jesus of Nazareth, as he was called, the Messiah, truly the son of David. And indeed, Jesus is the most unlikely person. We revere him. We exalt him. We know the end of the story. We have read the Bible and we see his exaltation. But the world would have looked and did look in the first century and even now and say, that is just an ordinary man, very ordinary born perhaps illegitimately, as the world would see it. Right? He didn't even come from the right origins. He's not from, a, from a, a fancy family. He's not from the royalty of the day. And Matthew was saying, yet although the world passes over him, although all would look past this Messiah, he is truly the one and only Savior of the world. I pray that even this morning and then in an ongoing way, that will become ever increasingly clear to you and become an ever increasing joy. And kind of a a final purpose for this section, and R.T. France says it this way, wrote an excellent commentary on these verses. He says, these verses will explain, therefore, how Jesus came to be formally adopted and named by Joseph, despite his own natural inclinations, and thus to become officially the son of David. The angel addresses Joseph as the son of David, and then we will see how Jesus fits into that plan. So let's begin the birth of the king 
And really, as I mentioned, we see this, it's kind of wrapped around a narrative, a Joseph's personal narrative. It's very personal. Just as Mary's narrative in, in Luke seems that Luke had a primary source or discussion, perhaps even with Mary, to kind of draw out her experience. Well, apparently Matthew either heard from, uh, certainly heard about Joseph from others, and so he writes from Joseph's point of view. It says, now the birth of Jesus was as follows when his mother Mary had been betrothed. So the first thing we see here is Joseph's painful betrothal, right? The first that he was, he was betrothed to Mary. And the reason that I say painful is this betrothal quickly turns into a very difficult situation because we see in the text that before they came together, she was found to be with child. And so what should have been a joyful occasion, remember that the betrothal is really the first part of the marriage contract. It's entering into marriage. There was another part, the marriage ceremony that was to be fulfilled and the physical consummation, but betrothal was considered marriage and had to be legally broken through divorce if it was going to be, to be broken. That's not true today. Our engagement is not marriage and you don't break it by divorce or you wouldn't break it by divorce. You have to enter into the marriage contract, right? After, at, at, when you have that ceremony. But back then... Right? In the first century, betrothal, although the first step in the marriage process, was considered legally marriage, and Joseph was considered the husband of Mary. And so he's betrothed to her. Remember that Mary was also of the lineage of David through Nathan. That's our best understanding of the uh, genealogy that we find in Luke chapter 3, that she was of the physical lineage of David through his son Nathan, just as, as Joseph was of the legal descent of David through Solomon. And we know that Mary was a faithful believer. Luke 1.30, when the angel appears to her, and she says, you know, he says, you're going to have a child by, by the Holy Spirit. She goes, how can this be? How can that actually happen? There is no such thing as a virgin birth. The angel visited her in Luke 1.30 and says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And after the explanation is given to her, Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What a precious phrase. May it be done to me according to your word. That's the way we should live our lives. Everything about who we are and what we do is according to his word. And we long to live that out as Mary did. She receives word directly from an angel. And we'll talk about it in a minute. Well, well, if we only heard from an angel, certainly we would agree. Certainly, we would then believe, well, one, it isn't true. Oftentimes, people have heard from angels and have not believed. But what we have, as we will see, is even a more sure word than an angel appearing to us in the Holy Scriptures, the canon of Scripture. And so we do have the Word of God, and we have it daily, moment by moment. There's no need to wait. And in fact, we would wait forever for an angel to appear to us to tell us the Word of God. We have been given that. Now, Mary receives it from an angel, but says faithfully, May it be done to me according to your word. What that says is, I believe. I believe what you say, that it will actually happen. And she longs to see that. So she was a righteous woman. That is one who believed the word of God because she believed God and she loved him and therefore wanted to be found obedient to his word. She had been betrothed to Joseph. Joseph was a carpenter, remember. Matthew 13, 55 says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And remember that a carpenter in those days would have worked probably with wood and with stone, essentially a builder, one who built in probably any medium. Would have been a lot of stone then, probably more than wood. And so he would build in any of these, building houses in the community and other things. So he would have been, we would probably see it as a regular middle-class kind of guy. 
right? Not someone who was in the upper echelons of society, but one who would have been well-known in the community, building people's houses, fixing people's houses, things along those lines. That was Joseph. In fact, he was so normal that when Jesus comes back to his hometown, Joseph most likely having already died, we don't know that for sure, but the people despise him. They're like, you're just from Joseph's family. We knew Joseph and Mary. We know, we know, your, we know your mother. We know your brothers. We know your family. You're nothing. You are nothing special. And yet what Matthew was saying here is Jesus is something special, not because of his parents and even because of their lineage, but because of who he is as the son of God, their lineage factoring in to that importance. And Donald Gray Barnhouse says a, says a precious thing about this combination of Mary and Joseph as being part of the line of David, which is emphasized over and over in our text and in the book of Matthew as a whole. He says this, But when God the Holy Spirit begat the Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of the virgin without any use of a human father, the child that was born was the seed of David according to the flesh. And when Joseph married Mary and took the unborn child under his protecting care, giving him the title that had come down to him through his ancestor Solomon, the Lord Jesus became the legal Messiah, the royal Messiah, the uncursed Messiah, the true Messiah, the only possible Messiah. The lines are exhausted. Any man that ever comes into this world professing to fulfill the conditions will be a liar and the child of the devil. There's only one Messiah, only one who fulfills everything necessary to be part of the line of David, and it's finished with him. There can only be one, and that's what Matthew was saying. This is the true Messiah. Everything works together from the predictions of the Old Testament then actually taking place in the New, as we move to the New Testament, as we move into the time of Christ, everything has been done according to what God promised. Joseph is betrothed to Mary, but then there is a a betrayal by Mary, or at least, and you can put that in quotes if you want, what seems to be a betrayal. For we find at the end of verse 18 that she, as I mentioned, before they came together, that is before they fulfilled the second part of the marriage contract, the actual marriage ceremony. Remember, there would have been about a year probably, uh, usually in a betrothal, and uh, that after that year, as the husband was preparing his household, preparing for his bride, And she would come and they would have the marriage supper and they would consummate the marriage. Well, before they consummated the marriage, before they came together, emphasized in the text, there had not been a physical union between them. Mary was with child. Now notice that the Spirit of God through Matthew puts up front and makes very clear for us that this was not an unholy or unrighteous union. That is emphasized over and over in this passage because the child already told to us was she was with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's where we stand in the narrative, but understand that Joseph doesn't stand there yet. He doesn't know that. When he looks at Mary, and when, as he interacts with her and watches then her stomach begin to grow, he then has this ever-increasingly sinking feeling. What is this? And when it becomes obvious, and they says she was found to be with child, doesn't mean she was trying to hide it. It simply means that it became obvious. Could have been something else before, maybe some other thing going on, but no, it's now obvious. This is a baby. And so after that is revealed, after that becomes recognizable to everyone, verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. The only thing that Joseph could know or think is that this was a result of Mary's unfaithfulness. It would be adultery at this point because they'd enter into marriage contract. And so he knows he has not been involved. It is not his child that is on the way. And so it has to be someone else. Mary has therefore been unfaithful. And we don't know the conversations. The Bible does not reveal that to us. And yet it is clear that Joseph does not assume any kind of virgin birth here. 
Because why would you? How could you? There's no such thing. As we said several weeks ago, there's only been one. There only will be one. This has never happened in the history of the universe. It will never happen again. And these were not primitive people who just thought, well, these things happen all the time. They never happened. And so the only thing Joseph, in his great, even in his great love for Mary, certainly I would, I would have to guess, I would have to believe wanting to believe something, and yet he can think of no other thing than this is unrighteous behavior on her part. Because notice the contrast. Saying here that he being a righteous man. Now, it's not saying Mary is unrighteous. It's only saying his righteousness and recognizing what appears to be an unrighteous situation, Mary having been involved in adultery, causes him to respond, to desire to respond righteously to this. He's righteously offended. Why? Because he believes what God says about adultery, that it's evil, that it's a violation of the character and nature of God himself. The Bible treats adultery very seriously. In our society today, we don't. It just happens. Couples do it. I mean, a, a betrothal or an engagement in which, which a baby's already on the way is the norm today. Well, not the norm in our church, by God's grace. Not the norm among true believers, by God's grace, although it certainly happens among true believers. But nonetheless, the norm for the world. And so they're not shocked by this at all. You read Who cares about that? But Joseph was a righteous man. He cared. And by the way, I'm not sure that it was all that unusual in the first century either. Now, it was considered much more of a stigma and there was a much more serious consequence, at least usually, but it would have happened back then as well. But Joseph is righteous, and so he recognizes that this is wrong. This is a sin on Mary's part, and essentially, according to the law, in Deuteronomy 27, he is called to either have her stoned to death, that was what the law required, the, the fullest extent of the law, or it seems, and we'll discuss this more in Matthew 9 and Matthew 18 as we talk about divorce and remarriage, it seems that there was a provision by which righteously a woman could be set aside or a man could be set aside who had committed adultery to be written a certificate of divorce at that point on the basis of the breaking of the marriage vow through adultery. And I want to I focus on that because there's no other reason to break the marriage vow. Uh, an unbeliever who leaves... Right? That's something we'll discuss later. That breaks a marriage as well. But as far as an action within marriage that can break that marriage, there's only one thing that can do that, and that's adultery. Why? Because God views the physical union of the man and the woman as sacred, and he views the picture of that as sacred, and so it's the only thing that can be allowed. In the Old Testament, again, remember what was generally supposed to happen was the death of the one who did this. And so, by the way, that would pave the way for a remarriage after that if there's a death. Well, in this case, Joseph says, and we don't know, we'll discuss remarriage and other things later, but all we know is he's a righteous man. He's not going to kill her. He's, he's obviously chosen that that's to have her killed. So he takes the next thing, which again, it appears in our best understanding is also allowable under the law because it's being emphasized that he's righteous here, and that is to put her away quietly, essentially to write her a bill of divorce, to divorce her. But he wants to do this quietly. Now, it says secretly. It doesn't mean that nobody would know. It means that the least amount of people would know. He's not going to put this in the paper. You see, if she had been stoned, she would have been dragged before the gates of the city, stoned to death so that everyone would see her shame. And had Joseph been a man who was vindictive, had Joseph been a man whose, whose heart did not truly love and did not desire to be, in this case, righteous, then he could quickly have taken that he could have gone to that lawful extent with a heart of jealousy and anger. But we know that that is not the case, that he loves her and desires to treat her as best as he can under the law, so he's going to set her aside. That's Joseph's righteous decision. Right? His righteous character is that he understands that he cannot overlook this adultery. You see, again, that's where our society pushes. Oh, adultery, no big deal. And please understand, we can recover from adultery. 
you can, in fact, be and, and be forgiven for that and, and enter into marriage and, and have the forgiveness of God. You can do that. But it is not to be overlooked as no big deal. It's a big deal because God considers it to be so. And before we move on from here, I just I, I would urge you, really, this is not the primary focus of the text, but the whole issue here of marriage and of the righteousness of it, the necessity of a virgin birth so that there is not there was not some kind of illegitimate birth here, and yet Joseph could not have been the father. These are all bound up in this text. Young people first, are you pursuing in your life what is righteous? So you would be like Joseph and Mary. We'll see again. There is no unrighteousness here, but it looks like there is. And are you pursuing and living your life in such a way out of righteousness that, that adultery for you would, would be a, a, the furthest thing from your thoughts? That you would not be pursuing those things which might lead to it in any way in the nature of your relationship so that you might enter into marriage pure because this is what God requires. The fact that there is forgiveness for it, that's a beautiful and special thing full of grace. But God's requirement is purity. And we must never forget that or dumb that down. That's really the the. the the foundation for that this text is even mentioned. Who cares that there is, you know, there would be someone who was unfaithful, except that God cares. And Joseph cared. And so he was going to divorce Mary. The only reason that a marriage can be broken, adultery. And Joseph was going to choose to do this. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. We need to remember this. Now, I, I appeal to the young people in the pursuit of your relationships. And again, it is my pleasure to see many relationships that I truly believe that you are working very hard at being pure. I applaud that. You must do that. And you must be accountable in that. But how about married couples here this morning? Oh, the danger of adultery. Well, that's the whole, that's the definition of it. That it is a breaking of the marriage bond is certainly something that that looms its ugly head in every congregation, in every place in the world. You are not immune no matter how strong your marriage may be, and there are many strong marriages here, but are you careful to be righteous? That you would not be drawn in these directions in any way because God hates adultery. He hates the marring of his name in the muddying of the physical union. And both men and women can, can easily move in this direction when they take their eyes off Christ and put it on their own selfish desires. Men tend to move in this direction through pornography, the viewing of of impure material. Women tend to move in this direction through bitterness and anger, separation from their husbands because they are not all that they wanted them to be. Both are immoral. Both are wrong and often lead to divorces, to the the wrecking of marriages in ways that are, are entirely inappropriate. Joseph is a righteous man. He took seriously the legal procedure for addressing the suspected adulteress in view of the Mosaic injunction concerning the unfaithfulness of a virgin pledged to be married. Joseph could not in good conscience fulfill his marital obligations with Mary, so he finds the next thing that he can do that does not bring undue harm to her because he loves her. This is his righteous desire. He's going to send her away secretly. Consider for a moment the anguish in Joseph's heart. Again, he doesn't yet know. He's about to know. We already know. So for us, like we just pass right over that. But consider the nature of that and the devastation of one who truly loved Mary and even Mary's devastation at, at how do I explain this? She knew, she knew the child was of the Holy Spirit. She knew she had not sinned. And yet this is what Joseph clearly thought. Well, now God steps in, as he is wont to do. And so we have Joseph's personal visitation. He, was, he, he planned to do this. this. Essentially, the text indicates to us this was a done deal. 
he was moving in the direction of setting her aside in divorce. And, and again, not shaming her, doing all that he could to keep this quiet in an appropriate fashion so that she would not be unduly harmed. Well, then God appears, really the, the angel of the Lord. But when he, when he had considered this, again, when essentially he decided this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. There we have it again. We've already been told that. Now the angel shows up and reveals that to Joseph. Mary already knew. We as the readers already knew. Now Joseph knows. What will he do? Now again, for us, it's like, well, of course, of course he's going to take her. Of course he's going to believe this. Really? Again, there are many who don't believe angels. Zacharias didn't believe. And the angel said that he, his wife was going to have a child through their normal union. And he didn't believe it. He's like, no, well, we're too old. I don't believe it. An angel showed up. And Zacharias said, How? there's no way. It's not happening. So don't think that if an angel shows up, everyone will believe it. Or that Joseph would necessarily somehow automatically. Oh, it's easy for Joseph. Really? He is to believe a virgin birth? He is to believe that this is actually what's going on with Mary, that this angel you know, has appeared. And in this case, it's not even a direct appearance. It's in a dream. Now, it doesn't remove the authority of the appearance because it's an angel of the Lord. This is a prophetic word, a direct word from God. Now, that happens either through the direct appearing of an angel like to Mary or through a dream either way, right, in the first century, in the Old Testament, okay, when these things, as these things happened then. So it, it's authoritative, right? and so Joseph has, he's got a decision to make. Now, the angel brings comfort here. And he says, Joseph, son of David. Now, he appeals to him being the son of David because he, that's essential in this whole process. Don't forget, Joseph, you're a son of David. For there to be the Messiah, whom this is, as will be revealed, you, are going, you must take Mary. That's kind of the implication. You have to be the one. You're the legal heir. But then he says, Joseph, son of David, so kind of appealing to his, his responsibility, but he comforts him. He says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid. Well, I mean, so much bound up in that. What might Joseph have been afraid of? Well, we could maybe postulate many things, but since the text has already told us that he was a righteous man, it seems the primary, his primary fear was that he would be unrighteous. If he takes Mary, he's going to be an unrighteous man. He's going to violate God's command. So how can he do this? I think certainly also the fear of what will be said. The fear of, of, of even how, how they will look together and what will happen to the child. All of those things. If I, if I marry her, what's going to happen? But again, it, it seems the primary focus of the text is that Joseph's fear would not so much be for himself. We already know that he seemed to be righteous and, and care for Mary. But that his fear would be somehow that God would be dishonored, that this would happen. Just no, don't be afraid. If you take her, it's okay. Even if nobody else knows, he doesn't say that, but that's the implication. Because the child is in her by the Holy Spirit. It's righteous. It's okay. It's a virgin birth. That solves everything. And by the way, the virgin birth does solve everything. Because it leads to the true God-man, who then can be truly and fully God, who is able to bear the righteous wrath of God against sin, as well as fully man, who can live as a man and experience things as a man and be our true high priest, a brother in all things, and suffering and being tempted in all things as we. The virgin birth solves all of that. So the angel comforts him. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, the one who was given to you. She is with child by the Holy Spirit. You see, Mary's virginity protected a great deal more than her own moral character, reputation, and the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. And remember, it didn't protect that against the public opinion. He's dogged again by this accusation of being an illegitimate child all throughout his life. 
And why not? That's, that's what the world would have believed. Who else is going to believe a virgin birth? Yeah, well, we know how that happened. Yeah, we were in, we were in, in you know, Bethlehem. We heard what went on. Oh, and Mary says, oh, it was of, of the Holy Spirit. Oh, come on. All right, so it does protect her, obviously, in, in reality, but it wouldn't have protected her in the opinion of others. Nonetheless, this virgin birth protected the nature of the divine Son of God. The child is never called the son of Joseph. Joseph is never called Jesus' father. And Joseph is not mentioned in, even in Mary's song of praise. Had Jesus been conceived by the act of man, whether Joseph or anyone else, he could not have been divine. He could not have been the Savior. His own claims about himself would have been lies. His resurrection and ascension would have been hoaxes. And mankind would forever remain lost and damned. There must be a virgin birth, a virgin-born Savior. And that's what's being celebrated here. And so the angel says, don't be afraid. God has planned this. This is God's work. So take Mary. Now, he also, the angel also makes a prediction here. He says, Mary will bear a son. So here's why you're not to be afraid. There's a child, and the child's been conceived by the Holy Spirit. How did that work? I have no idea. Mary's physical, you know, her, her physical DNA involved, and yet God's somehow overshadowing, overseeing her so that this happened. We just got to leave it there. It's what the Scripture says. Well, thank you for joining us on Grace Maryville Weekly. Pastor Chris Reiser has thoroughly demonstrated how God sovereignly used Joseph to fulfill prophecy and how Joseph, being a descendant of King David, ensured Jesus' legal claim as King and Messiah. If you would like to find out more about Grace Community Church, please join us at gracemaryville.org. There you can read our statement of faith and our distinctives as well as review our audio and video archive, which includes sermons, Sunday school lessons, and sermons from many guest speakers from our SOLA conferences and our Essentials conferences. We would love to have you worship with us in person if you're ever in East Tennessee. Our address, phone number, and email information can all be found at gracemaryville.org. Join us again soon as Pastor Chris continues in an exegetical look at the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.